55, verse 4. I'm going to read verse uh, 4 to 9. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would indeed bless our time tonight as we consider your word, as we consider the great deeds that your hand has wrought over these last 506 years, and as we pray for and plead with you to do those great works once again, that many more would come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and that you would cause your church not to look back and say it was reformed, but to look at the present and pray, Lord, reform us again. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1517, a lot of things that we enjoy today and take for granted were not there 500 years ago. No TV, can you believe it, kids? No cell phones, no cars, right? No lights, electric lights, you had to use candles, no running water, no toilets that you wanted near your house uh, because there wasn't any flush for that. That was 1517. And so that meant that culturally, things took place a little bit differently. People went and were outside more because there wasn't electric light in the basements like there is here. They gathered more to hear people talk. They were interested when a visitor came into the town. They wanted to hear what he had to say. And I want you to think about that as much as you can, as much as you can imagine that. We can't really do it very well because of all those things we have. But imagine that. And then I want you to think about A man coming into town, and the man is coming representing the only church that there is in town, and that's the Roman Catholic Church. And he has a message that he wants everybody to hear, and he has a product that he wants everyone to buy. His message is that the church has a way to deliver souls from purgatory, and the way that you can get it is if you buy what's called an indulgence. And many of you have heard about indulgences. Kids, an indulgence was a little piece of paper, and it said, you've been granted, and these are my words, you've been granted X number of years off of your time in purgatory. And if you get enough of those indulgence papers, then maybe you'll be able to get all the way out of purgatory. And here's the kicker, you can even buy them for your dead relatives. Now, we might laugh, we might think, that's insane, who could possibly do something like that? How could people be so foolish? The entire European world that was under the influence of the Roman Catholic Church was doing this. They were buying and selling indulgences. So, a man comes to town. His name is Johann Tetzel. People gather from all around because he comes with the authority of the Pope of Rome. He's traveled great distances to tell people how they can deliver their souls. And I want to begin tonight with a quote from the sermon that he would preach from town to town. Some of this language is old because it's 500 years ago. But listen carefully to what this supposed preacher of the church preached in the city of Wittenberg where Martin Luther was. This is a quote, Johann Tetzel, 15, 16, and 17. Listen now, God and St. Peter call you. 
Consider the salvation of your souls and those of your loved ones departed. You priest, you noble, you merchant, you virgin, you matron, you youth, you old man, enter now into your church, which is the church of St. Peter. Have you considered that you are lashed in furious tempest amid the temptations and dangers of the world, and that you do not know whether you can reach the haven, not of your mortal body, but of your immortal soul? Consider that all who are contrite and have confessed and made contribution and received complete remission of all their sins. Listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends beseeching you and saying, pity us, pity us. We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. Do you not wish to? Open your ears. Hear the father saying to the son, mother to her daughter, We bore you, nourished you, brought you up, left you our fortunes. Are you so cruel and hard that now you are not willing for so little to set us free? Will you let us lie here in flames? Will you delay our promised glory? Remember that you are able to release us. For as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Will you not then for a quarter of a florin receive these letters of indulgence through which you are able to lead a divine and immortal soul into the fatherland of praise? Imagine that. Imagine if that's all you'd heard your whole life, how guilty you'd feel that your long deceased relatives were crying out to you from the grave, help me. And you can help me by giving money to this man and he'll give you a slip of paper. That's what happens when a church falls into darkness over many years. That's what happens when the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ goes out or grows extremely dim. And as we think about the question that Pastor Zecchi rightly framed tonight in, does the Reformation matter? I want to propose that the Reformation could not have greater meaning for us today, and it matters most importantly for us for three reasons that we'll talk about briefly. First, it's because the gospel of God concerning Jesus Christ is at stake. Second, it's because we are prone to look for salvation in ourselves. And third, because the gospel of God is still the power of God unto salvation today. The Reformation matters then, first of all, because the gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. I'm not going to read it here. It's on your outline. But Galatians 1, Paul laments how quickly the Galatian church had gone to another gospel, which wasn't a gospel at all, from that which the apostles had preached. They had preached a pure gospel, and now the Galatians had turned that pure gospel into a false gospel, making it a religion of works rather than salvation by grace alone. I want you to think tonight, as you think about the world we live in now, fast forward 506 years, what do we see? What do we see in the world around us? We see sin. It's not just happening. It's promoted. It's celebrated. Wars, they're ongoing. Rumors of wars are filling up our news lines, even now. The root issue of these problems is what it's been since the garden, sin. Sin is all over the world that we live in because since Adam and Eve, man has fallen and dead in his trespasses to sin. 
People are not right with God and they don't know how to get right with God. And so God in his mercy in times of the Old Testament, he raised up what? Prophets, priests, even kings, right? Who proclaimed his gospel to the nations and called them to repent lest they perish. In the New Testament, what did he do? He raised up apostles for a time, pastors, elders, deacons, evangelists to go and bring the gospel to tell people the way that they might have everlasting life. And what is that way? Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no way to the Father but through him. So when Martin Luther came onto the scene, and he had been in Wittenberg for some time, Martin Luther realized that what was taking place in Germany, and he perhaps didn't realize immediately that it was taking place around the world, that what was taking place there put the gospel at jeopardy. Really, it destroyed the gospel. And that salvation, as it were, the gospel was essentially hanging, if you can imagine, on the edge of a cliff. Picture a big canyon, right? And the gospel in Wittenberg at that time, if it was even there, was was hanging on to the edge. Maybe not even there. Maybe it had let go. Maybe there was no gospel at all. And Martin Luther saw that there was something wrong in the church. And as he was reading the scripture, some of you know the story well, probably better than me, you know that there was one text that really captivated him. He thought that he needed to make himself just and then he could please God by faith. But what he learned from that passage in Roman, the pa- Romans and Galatians and Habakkuk and all those other places where that scripture verse is, the just shall live by faith, he realized that it wasn't a man who makes himself just, And then he goes on living by faith. But it's God who makes a man just. And then God makes a man just and gives him the gift of faith so that he can go on living for the glory of God. And Luther went about to make that gospel known, especially to the poor people in Germany who were being fed lies from a church that didn't preach the gospel and they weren't even able to read the Bible because it was in Latin and they spoke German. Luther saw the problem, and he went about to address it. Now, he thought he could just reason with Rome, and they would want to reform themselves. Luther never went about to leave the Roman Catholic Church. He wanted to fix it. He wrote the 95 Theses to help the Pope see the problems and fix the church. Little did he know, the Pope was very much behind the problems that were destroying the church. But that was what he went about to do. If you look at our situation today, I I looked at a couple surveys in advance of tonight, and there was a survey done last year, and it it had a pretty large sample size. I think it was over 25,000 evangelicals, and it found there that among those, that group of evangelicals, 55% said they believed the following, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 55%, not of the world, of evangelicals. 53%, almost the same amount, disagreed with the claim that even the smallest sin deserves damnation. 53%. There's a cultural research center in Arizona University, and they studied a large group of evangelicals as well, and they found that 52% believed that a person can gain heaven by being good or doing good. 2022, not 1517. That's the state of not the Roman Catholic Church, the churches that would call themselves evangelical, and Christians who would refer to themselves as Protestant, believing things that 
The reformers would have said, this isn't even Christianity. Believing things that they could, that a person can save themselves by being good. We're 506 years after the Reformation. Maybe some people are tired of hearing about the Reformation. I wonder if we've ever needed the Reformation again more than we do today with statistics like that. Charles Spurgeon, in his book, Lectures to My Students, I think it's 148 years since he published that, he said that as he looked out at London, at the the state of the church, he, he would speak a little bit about the church in the U.S., the church in the U.K., he said, as he looked out, he said, the, the church has come unanchored from the Bible, and it's drifted. And where has it drifted? It's drifted back to the Vatican. That was 150 years ago. I look at times like Spurgeon in the UK, and I think, wow, the glory days of the church. Spurgeon was there with his you know, 10,000 members you know, coming in and 1,000 new converts every year, and he says the church has come unhooked from the Bible, and it's drifted back to Rome. Well, if that was the case in Spurgeon's day, how much more today? These things that we mentioned in this survey that Luther was concerned about 500 years ago, salvation by works is at the root of it. It's a pretty big deal. If someone believes that they can get to heaven by their own works, they're not on the way to heaven. Souls are at stake based on what someone believes concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to pray that God would reform us again. So souls are at stake. That's the first reason we need to consider the Reformation. The second reason is that we are prone to look for salvation in ourselves. Galatians, again, I put the verse there. I'm going to read this verse. Galatians 3, 2 to 3. It's on your outline. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? You see, this is what's going on in the church today, is there's this idea that's not new. It was there in the days of the Galatians. There's this idea that maybe Jesus starts something in us, and then we continue it and perfect ourselves. So Jesus starts this good work in us, And then we, by the flesh, get ourselves to heaven. Or as Rome will put it, and it's there in the Roman Catholic Catechism on the back of your outlines, Rome puts it this way, that Jesus' death on the cross killed your original sin, but he didn't earn for you heaven. Now man, by his good works, has to earn heaven for himself. And if you do a lot of good works, you can earn extra heaven, and you can give that to other people. That's the present-day teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. My, I believe the only way that Rome has improved since 1517 is thanks be to God they're not burning people at the stake anymore. The theology has gotten worse in 500 years. The things that the reformers put out there as ideas that Rome believed, those are now doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. The things that, I, I don't know that the Pope in 1517 could imagine what the church would say about Mary in 2023. The theology has gotten much, much worse. You can read it in the Roman Catholic Catechism of today. But I, that quote from Galatians shows us that the issue was not a new issue. People are prone to look to save themselves. 
I've given that story many times before of a man on the plane. And he said he, he understood the words that were being said concerning the gospel, but he would not believe in Jesus Christ because if he was going to go to heaven, he was going to get him there by himself. Or people used to say, we're just going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. I'm not 100% sure what a bootstrap is, but we're going to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and we are going to get ourselves by our good works to heaven. Well, this is what Jesus dealt with in the scripture, isn't it? Remember the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus and he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. That's in Luke 18, 21. He looked and beheld the law of God. He said, I've done it. I'm going to heaven. I did it all by myself. The Jews said to Jesus, when he was telling them the way of everlasting life, they said, Abraham's our father. Who are you to speak to us, Jesus? Abraham's our father. We're going to heaven because Abraham is our father. The Pharisee, he went into the temple and he said, God, I thank you. I am not like other men. No, not like this publican. Praising the self. And then those that preach the false gospel in Galatians, the end of the book tells us they desire to make a good showing in the flesh. This is what happens in the world. People boast in themselves, their heritage, their works. They boast in themselves. And that's what the world is, is always going about doing. Nothing new under the sun that we see it today, that people think they can save themselves. This is what's been going on in scripture times. But if you fast forward the Middle Ages um, and the, the Dark Ages used to refer to the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages. They were dark because the gospel wasn't there. The light of Jesus Christ had almost gone out. That's why they were called the Dark Ages. And then the light came on of the gospel and the Lord gave, um, brought revival to the lands. But in kind of the middle or towards the end of that Dark Ages, there was some events in history that everybody knows well, whether they're Christian or not, that really brought to light this how, uh, that would demonstrate how ingrained this idea of salvation by works was in the people already. You know what happened around 1100 AD? The Crusades. The Crusades started around then. I think the first crusade was towards the end of the 1000s, beginning of the 1100s. Do you know how there were, you were able to grab all these nobles and peasant men from Europe to go march hundreds, maybe eventually a thousand miles round trip to go to this far off Middle East that they'd only heard of before, maybe, and go fight people that they never knew and probably die along the way? Do you know how you can get people to do that? If they believe the church has the words of eternal life and they'll do whatever the church says, religious zeal would get them to do it. So here's what Pope, who was the Pope then? Pope Urban II. This is what he did. He said, I've got a pronouncement, people. Do you want eternal life? Everybody that takes up the Crusader's cross and marches into the Middle East to go kill people, you will have eternal life and salvation. All your sins forgiven. Just go march to the Middle East. That's what he said. And you can imagine, people went and did it. Because how could the Pope, the very successor of Peter, he was claimed to be, the one who could speak the word of God, he could speak in the seat of God and from the mouth of God, supposedly, he would say, go and earn it. And here's the way you're going to earn it. Not doing good to people, which you can't even earn it that way. That's not the point. But not doing good to the poor, not selling all your goods and giving them to the poor. Go kill Muslims. That was the way you would earn salvation. That was 1100 AD. 
And that's what they did. How many crusades? There was the children's crusade. There was the second, the third crusade. What did they do? They went and just shed blood. And then the Muslims, they came to kill Christians in the name of God. They weren't really Christians. (laughs) If they were doing that in the name of Christ, that's not a real Christian. So anytime anybody tells you, well, the Christians, they committed the crusades. They weren't Christians. They were completely abusing the name Christian. Christian has nothing to do with the shedding of innocent blood or even stirring up wars in the name of Christ. Um, So you have a very interesting thing in the Crusades where Muslims and so-called Christians are doing the exact same thing to each other for the same reasons, shedding blood for their false god. Well, that type of theology is what was going on there in the 1100s all the way until the time of Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther, children, I don't know how old I was when I realized Martin Luther wasn't the first reformer. That shocked me. I don't remember how old I was, maybe six or seven. And someone said, he wasn't the first reformer. Well, wait a minute. I thought the Reformation started in 1517. Well, praise be to God that he doesn't just use one man in one year to spread his gospel. He always has a people worshiping him truthfully. And God raised up men like John Wycliffe and men like John Huss and men like Tyndale. And there were many others between 1100 and 1500 who were starting to reform the churches in their lands. And Martin Luther even writes extensively about how he thought as a young man and a young monk about those heretics, the Hussites. And then someone said, have you ever read the writings of John Huss? And as he was reading the writings of John Huss, and the Lord was giving to him all this knowledge of the scripture concerning justification, he started scratching his head, maybe, or did something. And he said, I'm a Hussite. (laughs) I believe what they believed. And people said, you better keep that quiet because, you know, they burned John Huss at the stake. But there were men, is the point, and there were people that were in churches that were following these reformers all through the ages. And even though they were persecuted, even though they were tempted to recant, some of them did along the way. And then God, by his grace, caused them to repent from that. People died for this gospel, that salvation is by Christ Jesus alone. And there's no other way. And no other name by which a man can be saved but by Jesus Christ alone. People died for that. And God preserved his church even through that persecution to the point of Martin Luther in Wittenberg. And so when Martin Luther started to see what Johann Tetzel was doing with his, I mean, incredible, he would just write on paper and people would buy what he wrote on the paper, he opposed it. He said, this isn't right. And the Martin Luther movie, which I think, was it last year or two years ago, we watched as a church on Reformation Day, does a good job of displaying Martin Luther's righteous anger. I think there was a sermon on that, Zeki, right, recently. Righteous anger, godly anger against the selling of these indulgences. And there was that poor woman, if I remember correctly, in that movie, and she buys it and she shows it to Luther. And Luther just takes from her, you don't need this. This doesn't do anything. You need Christ and him crucified. They were taking advantage of of people, especially the poor, playing on their emotions to get them to buy these these silly things that were abs- weren't even worth the paper they were written on. Maybe that's where the saying came from. Um, but the the Roman Catholic Church by the 1500s, given over to this superstition and idolatry, the Pope was nothing but a politician seeking to generate power in Europe, in particular, and the gospel of salvation had largely gone away. And so, with the Uh, nailing of the 95 Theses, Luther got to see something of the real uh, hatred of Rome that he didn't think would happen. It came upon him pretty quickly. And God used men like uh, like Frederick, the um, protectorate of Wittenberg and the surrounding area in Germany. 
Uh, he used a man like that, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute, how unique that was and how special that was in God's providence to protect Luther so that even in all of Luther's issues, and he had issues, in all of Luther's vulgarity, and he was something of a vulgar man, uh, in all of those things, God still used this man to spread his gospel to Germany and then even from there around the world, and we're recipients of it today. But you can imagine, if you're making all this money on a false gospel, now someone brings it into question. Are you going to just close up shop, agree that you were wrong and go home? Probably not. Think about when, was it Paul uh, preaching against idols? And do you remember that people stopped buying the, was this in Ephesus? I think it was in Ephesus, the trinkets to Diana. And remember the, the Diana makers, the little idol makers, they were losing their business. And did they just pack up shop and go home? No, not by any stretch, did they? They wanted those men arrested. Look, our whole business is at risk. People aren't worshiping idols anymore. They went to war with Paul and with the Christian church. Rome did exactly the same thing. They started what was called the Counter-Reformation. That went on from shortly after 1517 all the way until the end of the Council of Trent is a period called the, the, the Counter-Reformation, which is exactly what it sounds like. They tried to counter the gospel of salvation. They increased persecution. They outlawed Christianity, and the first guy on their list was Luther. And God, in his mercy, protected Luther. And watch the movie, and you can learn a little bit more about that. I don't want to spend too much time on things that we are very familiar with. But um, the kind of the conclusion to the Counter-Reformation was a very long council. The Council of Trent wasn't like a general assembly that's a week long. This was like eight or nine, maybe it was over ten years. Councils... Back then were very long periods of time. People came and went. And then finally, at the end of a decade, you got some sort of statement. And so the, the canon of Trent was a Roman Catholic uh, council, or the Council of Trent, was a Roman Catholic council that indoctrinated, uh, input in writing, the rejection of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And in particular, it was concerned with that through faith alone element. But it indoctrinated it, and it... it I'll read, I'm just going to read uh, one or two of those canons because they're on your sheet. But as it, it, didn't, it didn't just come out with written statements against the scripture. It went further and it said, anybody who disagrees with the Council of Trent and these canons, they are anathematized. Let them be anathematized. Now, maybe one of the, one of, somebody under 20 let me ask two questions. You can answer either one. Where have you heard that word before? Anathema. Second question, what does it mean? Where have you heard anathema before? What does it mean? Okay, somebody older. Up, oh, Jesse, you want to try? Yes. Does it have something to do with death? It does have something to do with death. Yeah. Is it essentially like what Paul said in Galatians? It's exactly what Paul said in Galatians. Whoever preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. And then he repeats it in Galatians chapter 1, in case anyone missed it. Here comes Rome. They not only preach the other gospel, but they, they then took the word from Scripture and pronounced the curse on anyone that believed the true gospel. 
Think about that swap of, of, <coughs> of the truth. You know what it means? What does it mean to be accursed? It's worse than that word. That word is a little bit... Damned. It means damned. You want to know why that's a curse word? It maybe is the curse word. Damned. Anybody that believes, that believes that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, according to the Roman Catholic Church, is damned. Those councils and these articles that are on the back of your outline, they are upheld by the Roman Catholic Church to this day. This is still the official doctrine of Rome, that we, according to Rome here tonight, we are damned for believing the gospel of Jesus Christ in the scripture. I'm going to read, I want to read to you just, uh, I'm going to read two of these canons. Canon 11. If anyone saith that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins, to the exclusion of the grace and the charity which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Ghost and is inherent in them, or even that the grace whereby we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be anathema. Now, there's a lot of words there. Here's what that is saying. What this canon is saying is, if you believe that men are justified, made right in the eyes of God, only because of Christ's righteousness and not by your works, you are anathema. That's what that canon is saying. That, that's, that was canon number 11. Uh, canon number 33. If anyone saith that by the Catholic, now this means Roman Catholic doctrine, touching justification, by this holy synod inset forth in this present decree, the glory of God or the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ are in any way derogated from, and not rather that the truth of our faith and the glory in fine, and I think I have a typo there, in uh, the glory of God and of Jesus Christ are rendered more illustrious, let him be anathema. So if anybody says that the Council of Trent brought down the word of God, stomped on the word of God, threw out the true and pure gospel, and doesn't say that the Council of Trent lifted up, let him be anathema. That's all of us. If we believe the word of God, we have been declared anathema or damned by the Council of Trent. Well, that was, uh, that was the work that the Roman Catholic Church did, and you can see how zealous it was for this other gospel. They had some success. They were able to put people to death. They were able to take back some of the territory that they had lost. There were some things done happening in Protestantism in the Reformation that helped that. There were some sinful things done in the, in the peasants' revolt and things like that in Germany where blood was shed and people sinned, and that gave a little bit of uh, political power back to Rome. Things weren't all good in Protestantism, but God kept the light alive and it kept spreading. All of this to say, if we don't keep the Reformation in our minds, and if we don't keep what I mean by that is the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, what's on Martha's shirt, the five solas, if we don't thank you, Martha, very well done. If I had prizes, yeah, that's the... That is the winning shirt. Um, if we don't keep that alive, we, we are prone. We as sinful fallen people, we're prone to want to save ourselves. I, I don't like people doing things for me. I mean, I like people that do things for me. Don't hear me wrong. <laughs> but I like doing things myself because I'm, like, I'm a man. I want to do it myself. I want to take care of myself. 
right? I think some of you men can relate, probably some of you women too. I want to do things for myself. I can't save myself. I can work the rest of my life and give all my money to the poor and all my time to the poor and do all these nice and good things. Not one ounce of that will do anything to save me. But the way of salvation is in Christ Jesus alone. And he is the only way of salvation. He is the complete way of salvation. And so as in wrapping up our time, I, wanna, I want us to look at the third reason the Reformation matters. And if I can interrupt myself, it's been a long day of work, so forgive me for not being as on point tonight. But um, I'm going to interrupt myself before that, third, uh, before that third and final point. And I hope this is a helpful interruption. Um, I said I want to mention something about Frederick, the protector, and Wittenberg, the place. God's providence and his sovereignty over all things is beyond our imagination. That's why some people look at the sovereignty of God and his providence and they say it's a miracle because it's just so beyond our comprehension. How could this thing fall in line the way it did? God works wonderfully. God doesn't need the strongest Christian city in the world to be the place that he starts the Reformation and the next revival. He doesn't need that. He doesn't need a church that's filled with thousands of Christians who love the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That from that giant place, God is going to start a reformation and bring about revival. He can do that. He's free to do it, but he doesn't have to do it. He can take the most unlikely of people. He can take the most unlikely of cities, and he can start reformation and revival right there. He did that in 1517 with Wittenberg, the city, and Frederick the Protector. And I want, I want you to notice that, I think he's called Frederick the Wise. Um, I want you to see that in, in this way. Frederick the Wise, he was known for this before he was known about anything for the Reformation. He was known as a collector and lover of relics. He loved religious relics. Now, thankfully, by God's grace, if, if I didn't tell my kids what relics were religiously, they probably wouldn't know. And maybe that's some of you too. What's a religious relic? Religious relic is an object that's claimed to come from some great historic event that if you were to look at it, so says the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Churches, I believe the Coptic Churches, is that right? The, the, the same, all of them are, are very similar in this regard. If you just set your eyes on them, you merit grace for yourself. You earn a piece of salvation if you just set your eyes on this relic. So Frederick loved collecting these things. Wittenberg was the place for pilgrims to go to look at tons of relics and get themselves a huge discount off of purgatory and their relatives as well for a small sum of money. I want you to listen to this. This is, this is what was in just a sample of what was in Wittenberg that Frederick had spent fortunes gathering. He paid men that were that were bigger scam artists than Johann Tetzel to get some of this stuff, as you'll, as you'll see in a minute. But indulgence, I call them indulgence tourists, and that's what they were. They called themselves pilgrims, but they went about to look at these relics and gain credit off of purgatory, or I guess debit their time in purgatory and credit their speed to heaven was the idea. But this is what he had. These are some of the highlights, because they had guidebooks, by the way, maybe AAA, first AAA back then, indulgence guidebook. The tooth of St. Jerome, the tooth of St. Jerome, four bones of St. Augustine, and several from St. Chrysostom, a swath of Christ's swaddling clothes, 
How did they know all this? This is what they had. Fragments of gold brought by the Magi to Jesus. Why they didn't have whole coins, just fragments. 13, everything was fragments, as you'll hear. 13 fragments of Jesus's childhood crib made by Joseph's own hands. That was there. I don't know that counts as one or 13, but that was there. A strand of Jesus's beard. Four hairs from Mary's head. She gets four times what Jesus had. A piece of bread from the Last Supper. A vial containing drops of milk from the breast of the Virgin Mary. Just crazy. It's crazy stuff. But this is what people went there for. The complete skeleton of one of the infants killed by Herod in Bethlehem. 35 splinters from the true cross. This is the kicker. The very feather of an angel. That was there. You could see that in Wittenberg. That's just a sampling. You know, I think it was Luther that said, if you added up all the supposed splinters of the true cross in Europe alone, you'd have a whole forest. (laughs) Um, But that's what they were doing. In all, this collection, there were 19,013 relics. And it was calculated in the guidebook that if you viewed all these relics in the right order at the right times and you hit the best relics on the highest holy days and got the most credit, that you could shorten your time in purgatory by exactly 1,902,202 years, 270 days. Now we laugh, and I'm glad we laugh, but we could also weep, couldn't we? How many countless souls were doing this around Europe? This was Wittenberg, Germany. Where in the world is that? What were they doing in Rome? You know, some people think that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle in Wittenberg. It was actually the castle church in Wittenberg, and that's where you nailed advertisements. Do you know in the year 1517, there were 9,000 masses done in the castle church in Wittenberg? Now, 9,000. You know what? If you're, if you're going, they were about 15 minutes each for eight hours a day. They would do 30 masses a day to get as much money in because you brought your money into the mass. Then you went and saw the relics and you got all the blessings and the holy water and all the rest. 9,000 masses every 15 minutes. That's about as fast as they were doing them in Rome, too, where they were really bringing in the money. That's what was going on in Wittenberg in 1517. The very place where Martin Luther's Reformation, or we should call it God's Reformation of his church, started. What a place. The fortune that Frederick was giving up by protecting Luther and the income stream is unimaginable. What a place. What a man. And God worked that place and that man, Frederick, to be the place and the protector for the Protestant Reformation. We should marvel at God's sovereignty in all this. But the third reason that the Reformation matters today, it's because of this. The gospel of God concerning Jesus Christ, our Lord, is still the gospel of salvation for everyone who believes. Martin Luther understood 
that Christ alone was his salvation. That's why he could say those famous words, which some people think were misquoted, but that's why he could say, as the movies tell us, here I stand and I can do no other, so help me God, amen. How could he do that? How could a martyr go to the stake and be burned with fire? I burned myself on the grill the other day. I was jumping in pain. These men were burned in fire till they died. Why? Because they knew That Jesus Christ alone was their salvation and they had no hope in this life or the life to come apart from him. He was worth dying for. That salvation was worth dying for. And Martin Luther was willing to die for it and God didn't cause him to lose his life in that way. Dying for that. Justification, it is the work of God's free grace whereby we are pardoned from all our sins and accepted as righteous in God's sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Martin Luther came face to face by faith with the God who gives salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And he believed in him and he looked for the eternal glory that awaits in heaven for all Christians. And he said, that's worth dying for. In fact, it's also worth living for. And he spent his whole life living for Christ Jesus, the Lord. Bill Wilson, I wasn't sure, I, I didn't think B would be here. She has a long drive. But Bill Wilson, when he was a couple months from death and the elders were spending time with him, I, I spent some time with him before he was in the hospital, when he was still at, um, I think it was when he was in one of the rehab facilities. And we were talking about Rome. Maybe it was around the time of the Reformation. I don't remember exactly. But Bill Wilson said, then you can summarize the Roman Catholic religion and the Protestant religion in this way. The Roman Catholic religion teaches that God saves sinners almost. Almost. He starts it. He gives them something good. But he doesn't save them completely. They have to go save themselves to get to heaven, which means, which means he doesn't save at all. If he doesn't save completely, what is almost? That's no good for me. I can't save myself. And he said, but the Christian religion is what Hebrews 7, 25 says. He saves to the uttermost all who come to him by faith. That's the only way Jesus saves. There is no other salvation of Jesus Christ, but a complete, a full, an all-sufficient salvation. That's what the Reformation was all about regaining Salvation through Christ alone. But let's see that briefly from Scripture. As we think about those five solas of the Reformation, so often repeated, they, and I praise God that they make shirts, shirts of the five solas. But do we know the Scripture behind these things? Because it's great to say them. But if it's not according to Scripture, we have no business promoting it. We need to be people about the Scripture. And there's one of the solas, sola scriptura. What does scripture say concerning salvation? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Do you think God knew what Rome would be teaching and would be tempting people with when this inspired scripture came to us? Not of works, not of yourselves. For by grace are ye saved. 
Justification, salvation is by grace alone. Sola gratia. Sola gratia. By grace alone. And there is a way in which this grace is received. It's received through that instrument. The only instrument by which grace is received is faith alone. We could read Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 again. I'm going to read Galatians 2, verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. We don't receive grace by being gracious. We don't receive grace by being kind or good. We don't receive it from our parents, our grandparents, our siblings, or even by the good works of St. Peter. We receive grace by faith alone. The only instrument, sola fide. That's where Rome targeted. They thought if they targeted there, they could destroy the Reformation. Thanks be to God, they couldn't. Sola fide. And that faith, brothers and sisters, children, that faith itself is a gift from God. It's a saving grace. He gives us faith in himself. Now, this faith, it's not blind. It's not a mere idea. The Christian faith is focused. It has an object. Its object is a person. You know him. He's your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the object of our faith. Our faith is entirely in him. We receive and rest upon Christ alone as he's freely offered to us in the gospel. And so Paul says in Romans 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into his grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There is no other savior. There is no other merit that satisfies the wrath of God, but Christ's work and Christ's merit alone. Someone did work for salvation. Don't ever let that escape you. Christ worked for salvation. He alone worked. He died on the cross. He lived a perfect life so that we who have no merit might have the righteousness of Christ given to us. And so the apostle says in Acts 4, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole, the lame man who was raised up. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Well, where can Jesus be found? He's seated high up in the heavens. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that. Must we ascend up into the heavens, get Jesus off his throne and bring him down that we might know Jesus? Or maybe some, they deny the resurrection like the Sadducees. Do we think Jesus is still buried and we need to go dig into the earth and bring Jesus up that we might be saved? What does God tell us? He is very near, even in his word. Christ is near, and there we come face to face with the living and true God. There we come to know Jesus. No other place can you come to know Jesus. You can study the stars forever, know wonderful things about the Creator, but not know the Savior. The Savior, Jesus Christ, whom we believe in, he is found in the Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura. Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. 
That's why it's our only rule for faith and life. Because there, God speaks to man. And there, God shows us the way back to God, even through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Well, why did God send his son to save sinners? We could say he loved the world that he made, and that's true. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. We could say, well, he promised that he would send a Savior, and he did promise that to Adam and Eve in the garden. He made those promises throughout the scripture, even to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to David and, and all the prophets. He did make a promise, and he's faithful to keep his promise. But there's a reason, if we can put it this way, above all the other reasons, that God saves sinners, and that is for the glory of his name. Romans 11.36, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. The salvation of sinners for the glory of God. The grace of God being the only way a person might be saved so that God might be glorified. So where is boasting? It's not in us. We'll boast in the cross. We'll boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. All things are done for his glory. Soli Deo Gloria. We have been given a great heritage. Children, tonight you're here learning the things of the Lord again. Don't think of that as, again, think of that as, what a blessing, what a reward. Outside tonight, people are going door to door with masks, asking for candy, and maybe some kids are getting bucket loads of candy. And yet you are gathered around the word of God with the saints of the Lord God, learning the words of eternal life, that when Christ returns, you will be on his right hand, hearing those words, blessed are you of my father, enter into my glorious rest. How many of those that aren't here tonight are going to be hearing other words, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Where do you want to be? On the right hand of Christ and glory, on the left hand and destruction and and damnation. That's the contrast that the Reformation presents to us because it's presenting to us the way of salvation. It's presenting to us the gospel. And there's only one way to everlasting life. And it's always and only through Jesus Christ who was proclaimed when he came in the flesh over 2,000 years ago and has been proclaimed by his church ever since. Don't think little of the Reformation. Think much of the Reformation. Don't pray a little for revival. Pray much for revival. And if you look out in the world and see the masses and the throngs going their own way and seeming to enjoy it as they do, keep the eternal perspective in mind that they're on the Broadway that leads to destruction and pray to God that he would pluck them from that way and bring them to the narrow way. It leads to life. That's what Luther didn't do this just for himself. He had received great things from God and he wanted all the world to know and doesn't all the world know it in some sense today. We need to be about that. As we taste and see that the Lord is good, I hope tonight we'll see, we've seen that once again. As we've tasted and seen it, don't hide it. Make it known around and pray that God would make it known. That even from a small little town on the northern